Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So we have just entered the Acura TLX. We've picked up Dana and Steve at their hotel in Cambridge. And today I'm taking you guys to see what now exists the most noted public works project in the country. No. (laughs) You know what it is? This is going to be a big dig? It's going to be a big dig. Oh, (laughs) yes. Julia Turner. Once again, another story added to the Tower of Respect. Wait, you're excited about the Big Dig? Of course the Big Dig is the most notable thing about this berg. <laughs> no, I don't mean that, but it is, it's just so freaking mythic, right? Like, we finally did a public work in this country and we botched it completely. Uh, well, okay, we can judge whether we botched it or not. Um, Wait, can I play the part of the naive bystander and ask what the big dig is you certainly can it's evidently some sort of failed public works project but unlike steve (laughs) i don't immediately thrill to the words so all right well so to help explain it because one of the things i've learned from doing this podcast in boston where i'm supposed to tour you guys around like a local because this is supposedly my my precinct um is that i'm i don't really know boston that well i was a kid here right i lived here until i went to college and so i really know about like the awesome blossom at the chilies and harvard square that i used to eat with my friends before i went to see movies every friday night and like that you could get good apple croissants at the obon pen in the pit in cambridge <laughs> but like actual interesting things about boston not through the eyes of a 16 year old i'm less up on so i brought a special guest my dad, Robert Turner. Woo! Hi, Dad. <laughs> Hi, Julia. <laughs> um, so, in addition to being my dad, he's a um, journalist of long standing who worked at the Boston Globe. And one of the things that he covered while working on the editorial page there is the Big Dig and its aftermath. So, Dad, explain to Dana what was the Big Dig. Well, so I want to. So, uh, Dana, the Big Dig was there was an elevated artery, the central artery part of the interstate system that ran right through downtown Boston, and uh, they decided to put it underground, and they did, uh, with a, a lot of uh, big digging, and it cost a lot of money. When and, did the project start? Uh, f- uh, 70s, <laughs> really, probably the first shovel was in the ground in the 80s, and then it was finished uh, 
golly, eight or ten years ago, I should have prepped better for this. Um, <laughs> You're now fully an honorary gabfester. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we're gonna have to, uh, we're gonna have to wing it here a little bit. But um, why was it, it nationally renowned slash reviled? It was hugely expensive. I don't know, fifteen billion dollars, round numbers. Um, and but I would like to ask Steve. Why he thinks it was a disaster? No, I actually that was me being horribly glib. I suspect it probably cost more than it would in a you know either socialist or free market utopia. Pick, <laughs> pick, pick your utopia, but um, in the real world, you know there might have been some graft, a little bit of skimming, you know that got it from what was the initial budget. To uh, two or three billion, yeah, to fifteen. So yeah. get, got you at a seven x your initial uh, 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 projected outlay, but um, but nonetheless, it made Boston a better city, correct? Well, it's um, it, it was hugely expensive. There's no doubt about that. The overruns are s- somewhat exaggerated because the two or three billion was in current dollars. Yeah. So naturally, ten years later, it's going to be way more. But it did uh, run enormously over. It was very expensive, uh, but. Most people in Boston, you know, it still politically uh, has a negative connotation. Although the guy now running for governor as a Republican, Charlie Baker, was in the administration and was criticized four years ago for being around when these huge cost overruns occurred. But uh, it doesn't seem to be, he's running again and it doesn't seem to have come up that much this time around. So I think it's, uh, I think the budget stuff isn't sticking so well and in fact uh, it's a huge success in transportation terms we're um, you know if we wanted to go south we could get there in five minutes it would have taken 45 minutes to an hour uh, before the big dig the central artery was very jammed up all of the time and it's a huge um, a huge transportation plus for the city so uh, it does have a bad reputation but it um, it works. The part on top, which is of interest to me, which is they've created where the elevator used to be. They've created a linear park um, that uh, is called the Rose Kennedy Greenway, and it has, in my view, still a lot of potential that is unrealized. But it's an interesting public space. So one thing that's interesting to think about with the artery, and it's I feel like I'm having flashbacks to my childhood of hearing about the central artery being jammed up. Like, that's literally what they would say on the, on the <laughs> news radio every morning driving to school with the traffic reports. Um, and But it's almost... The project of the Big Dig is almost like... It's almost like one of those huge Robert Moses projects that was going to run a highway right through the middle of... Um, New York's Little Italy had been built and then got unbuilt. You know, this artery, what it did in addition to being a traffic nightmare, was kind of cut off parts of Boston from itself. So we're going to walk down the Rose Kennedy Greenway and see, you know, how the city became severed by this initial public works project and then how this big dig, this kind of nationally known massive expenditure, rectified that and then there's this question about what was done with the space that remained and 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 whether it's working well or could work better and how to think about it you've you've given me an inspiration which is we should launch a great anti-public works project in which we pick 
you know, a hundred things in every municipality that deserve to be buried. <laughs> the, the excrescences of you know former uh, liberal utopian planners. All right, so we're out of the garage. Here we are. We're on the Rose Kennedy Greenway. Um, what what section is this, Dad? How far along are we on it? This we're pretty much right in the middle uh, of it, and this is supposed to be the um, heart of the Rose Kennedy Greenway. There's a fair amount of uh, design effort that's gone in here. These are light towers uh, in these next two parcels that go all kinds of different colors, sort of like the Empire State Building, but more <laughs> at a different altitude. Uh, but they have different colors on different days. And we have some hardscape, we have some lawn, we have one person having a cigarette. We have. <laughs> so, why do you think this hasn't become a successful public space? Is it just a matter of design? I think it is partly design, but also partly um, that they. The, after Ted Kennedy died, the, the funding, everybody squeezed in the funding didn't take very long to uh, forget about the Kennedy legacy and the money that they had they spent on maintenance more than programming so I think it's not nearly programming this place ought to be loaded with you know classes of Boston school kids doing projects or so that they would come when they grow up older and come back and feel it as a place of their own Um, in the planning the phrase common ground became cemented into the idea of what this should be and every person who raised his head with an idea for the Greenway said well this is going to contribute to its being common ground One thing that strikes me about uh, this park versus the High Line is that the High Line is a very the act of reclamation is visible in it you're clear that you're on train tracks there's sort of like train motifs and then the elevated nature of it means that it's a sort of space that you never would be in. It's an elevation that you never see New York at, a story up, a story and a half up. It's an unusual venue and it it makes clear its relationship to the city's transportation past. And that's one thing that if you just, you know, if if you happen to be staying at a hotel near here, Steve and Dana, and walked across this plaza to go get yourself coffee on the other side, I don't think you'd even if you were aware of the big dig, I don't think you'd necessarily be like, oh, this is where they had that crazy artery and then through a gigantic act of human ingenuity, they reclaimed it and turned it into this marvelous park and I should appreciate this swath of grass particularly because of what it used to be. The what it used to be isn't isn't like apparent to the to the lay visitor in the way that it is in the High Line, which I don't know if that how much that contributes to the High Line's appeal, but it does strike me that you could just cross this street and think, huh, some grass, nice, and not get, not grok the history. That's a very good point. I think somewhere around here there is an old rusty I-beam that they left for that, but it doesn't, (laughs) doesn't, doesn't quite do the same as, (laughs) as the High Line. (laughs) It's definitely nicer than the gigantic, massive, hulking roadway that used to be here when I was a kid. It's pretty, it's pretty incredible that it happened. Steve, what's your take? Do you still regard the Big Dig as a monstrosity? No, not at all. Um, it's great that they made something large, loud, polluting, and excrescent disappear. It does. Uh, it does feel more as though the ab- like the absent thing seems to be the important thing rather than the present thing. That you know they 
um, one doesn't feel as though this is a respite from the automobile. And as I'm sure our listeners can hear, you don't feel that way in this green space. Um, and that, I think, is probably the measure of a good urban green space. Right. The, even though the bulk of the cars are underground, we're still the the parkway is straddled by roads on either side. But it is. I mean, this the you know Kevin Lynch actually was a was sort of like Boston's version of Jane Jacobs in a way. He was a really interesting urban planning brain who thought about how we perceive and conceive of cities um, and worked out of Boston and. I think even the notion that you could be at Faneuil Hall and think, let's just walk over to the North End, mm-hmm. you know, which is which we're very adjacent to here and which is Boston's Italian section. Even that idea is not something, as a child, you would have been like, what, how, huh, how am I going to do that without going under some murky? And I, I certainly never did that as a kid. And in fact, despite the fact that I went to Faneuil Hall a jillion times, I didn't explore the North End very much um, on those trips because it felt miles away even though we've just walked from one to the other in you know eight minutes so that sense of what parts of the city are accessible to you I think have also changed in ways that um, are probably hard to measure unless you know how you used to relate to these spaces yeah I mean I still have never read The Power Broker it's one of those things I'm going to do you know once I finally abandon my own nonfiction project for good but um, but anyway uh, I, I have been told that the highways were consciously used as ways of racially and economically segregating cities. They weren't just built, you know, in order to accommodate massive amounts of suburban, you know, automobile traffic, but there was a sense that, in effect, if not actually drawn up somewhere on a whiteboard, that they would, they would physically separate poor and overwhelmingly minority populations from the white remnant, the non-suburban white remnant of the city. It certainly worked that way in its effect, it worked that way in New York City and New Haven, the two cities that I've lived in, where huge highways separate the urban populations. You know, it still works that way to, to a degree in Brooklyn. So, to the extent that you can make them disappear, I mean, you've created an enormous social good. Whether you put, you know, who knows what you put on it, like you know, a green sword or a Starbucks or you know, a carousel or nothing. I mean, it's better. Um, Dad, was the? I mean, I don't know that much about the history of Boston's North End, but. Was there a sense of trying to wall it off, or do you under, do you know that much about the history of the elevated roadway in the first place? Uh, I don't really know the history, but I w- would say generally that I think affluent communities have clout as a generalization, and if the plan the the planners may not intentionally have gone out wanting to separate poor communities, but um, you know I think probably in some cases they did, where you had a lot, particularly a lot of immigrant neighborhoods probably were were separated consciously but I think in many cases uh, that kind of separation happened uh, not by design uh, but by the fact that the wealthier communities had enough clout to protect their physical uh, space and then what was left over was a road that that uh, ended up segregating the uh, poorer communities all right well uh, Dad, thank you for giving us this tour of the Rose Kennedy Greenway and uh, enlightening Dana about the history of the Big Dig. <laughs> now that we're in the North End, it seems like maybe we should uh, conclude by going and getting some cannoli. Yeah, I feel like I'm out of cannoli after this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's get, let's get real coffee. 
All right. Well, that was the end of our special bonus tour of Boston, led by my dad and made possible by Acura, which sent us on this awesome national roadshow this fall. The podcast in particular was made possible by Acura and the all-new 2015 TLX Luxury Performance Sedan. For decades, Acura has built performance sedans with unwavering purpose and passion. The all-new 2015 TLX represents more than the latest evolution. It's the clearest expression yet of Acura's performance philosophy. It's power and control brought into perfect balance. It's anticipating where the driver wants to go, changing the way the wheels move and guide you. It's uncompromised design in the name of unrestrained feeling, putting exhilaration front and center once again. It's that kind of thrill. Check out the all-new 2015 TLX at Acura.com slash TLX, or better yet, experience the thrill for yourself and take a test drive at your local Acura dealer.